you would remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we're going to be starting at verse 28 and going through verse 45. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 45. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was say- as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met Him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher! I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and he will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into yours. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him, about this saying. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. And as you do, if you would please bow your heads and pray with me. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and honoring in your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I have been seriously enjoying the last couple of days. It has been beautiful weather. Uh, We have been able to wear jeans in our house again. It's not sweltering hot. You don't step out the door and immediately sweat through a shirt. 
Uh, it means less laundry in our house, thankfully, because I've been going through several shirts a day, it seems. Um, and uh, it has just been gorgeous. It is great to see the transformation. Uh, fall is coming. Um, but as I was looking at the forecast for the rest of the week, it's not coming quite yet. <laughs> I, uh, it's probably going to go back up into the 80s, uh, maybe even more by the end of the week. And so uh, as I was thinking about this sudden uh, transformation of the weather, it kind of reminded me of the transfiguration that we're going to look at this morning. Because what the disciples saw was a brief glimpse, Peter, James, and John get this brief glimpse uh, of Jesus in his full glory. They see him dazzling white. His clothes are, are more white than any bleach could bleach them. Um, and uh, they see Christ in his glory. They see Moses and Elijah next to him. I've always wondered, and I've never, uh, never known, how these guys knew exactly that it was Moses and Elijah. Um, for us today, you know, if we saw somebody from the past, you know, we, we might have a picture of them or, or something. But uh, how do they know it was Moses and Elijah? I guess it was the Holy Spirit. Uh, it was God supernaturally doing that. Um, but they got to spend a little time with, with these heroes of, of the faith. Uh, but for a brief moment, it was a little preview of the things to come, uh, much like the weather has been this past weekend. So this morning in our passage, uh, we see Jesus taking his inner circle. This is Peter, it's James, and John, and he takes them up to the top of a mountain in order to pray. And when they are there, the most amazing thing happens. In the story of the transfiguration this morning, we're going to see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, both in his divinity and in his humanity. So as Luke tells us, the appearance of his face is altered, and his clothes become a dazzling white. What does it mean for Christ's face to be altered? Uh, I imagine this is kind of what, what it was like for Moses as he came down uh, after he received the Ten Commandments. He had to wear a veil because his face was, was glowing. It was bright with the glory of the Lord. I uh, would love to know uh, what it actually looked like for, for Christ's face to be altered. But the disciples could tell that there was something different about him. His glory was coming through. His clothes became a dazzling white. And here we see the divinity of Christ, his true glory. Uh, this is similar to what the disciples will see after the resurrection when Christ appears to them multiple times. Here, Christ is not being veiled by his humanity. Instead, the veil is removed, and the disciples get to see his glory shining through. And then, lo and behold, who would appear but Moses and Elijah? It's amazing. In this encounter, we see both the divinity of Christ and his humanity very clearly. So first of all, uh, this is... a the divinity of Christ is, is shining through here because we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's very important that Moses and Elijah show up because Moses, he signifies the law. Elijah, he signifies the prophets. This is the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets that we have. And Jesus is signified then as the fulfillment of these things, uh, the writings that we have 
in the Old Testament Scriptures point to Jesus. Jesus is the person that the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Elijah points to. And what it does is it also shows that Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. We see Peter's comments here this morning, and I think one of the most... (laughs) One of the funniest verses in all of Scripture uh, is when, in verse 33, Luke, Luke says, Peter, not knowing what he said. Uh, I find that funny because this is Peter to a T. He speaks first, and then he thinks later. He is always running at the mouth, not knowing always what is saying, what might come out. And uh, I'm sure the other disciples are exasperated by him sometimes, like, Peter, come on. And so he says, Jesus, let's make a shelter so that you guys uh, can stay here. Uh, Peter's comments uh, about these shelter, uh, these shelters that he wants to build uh, are out of line for a, very, a variety of reasons. One, because he wasn't thinking and he gets diarrhea of the mouth and he doesn't think before he speaks. Uh, two, but he is putting Jesus then on the same level here as Moses and Elijah. He says, let's build three shelters because you guys are amazing. You and Moses and Elijah are incredible, and I'm putting you on the same level. But that's not reality. Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. He is who Moses and Elijah point to. This is one of the reasons why his comments there are out of line. So we see the divinity of Christ in this encounter with Moses and Elijah, but we also see his humanity. And this is honestly really beautiful to see. Moses and Elijah come to talk with him about his departure. Literally, what this word is translated to is his exodus. When you think of the exodus, obviously you think of Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. They come to talk to Jesus about his exodus. And if there's anybody in the Bible that you want to talk to about an exodus, it's Moses. He knows what that's like. So imagine the encouragement that these two men are to Jesus at this point in his ministry. Uh, We're going to read in the next couple of verses that Jesus is going to set his face to Jerusalem. He's about to set his face there, knowing what he is about to encounter. The discipleship of his disciples is coming to a close. He knows that he is about to suffer and die. Uh, Mark Peterson, one of uh, a man who has been visiting with us recently, uh, he and his wife Pamela are in Arizona right now, and uh, he had, uh, I think it was triple bypass surgery while he was there visiting with his family. Uh, it was very unexpected surgery. Imagine if you were him, and he knew beforehand that going to Arizona, that he was going to experience this that he was suddenly going to have these chest pains, that he was going to be admitted to the hospital and going to suffer, uh, and going to have to endure triple bypass surgery. How would you feel getting on that plane heading to Arizona? You would feel a little nervous. Uh, you would not know, okay, when, when is this going to happen? Um, everything that you would do that would consume your thoughts because you knew what was about to happen. This is the situation of Jesus. He knows the suffering that he is about to endure. He knows that he is heading to Jerusalem where he will be rejected, 
where he will be beaten, where he will suffer and die on the cross. And so Moses and Elijah come to comfort him. And these are two people who know what is going on. They see the bigger picture. They understand what is happening. They can encourage him. They can be sympathetic, but also empathetic. They have come to be present with him. And as they are there and about to depart, this glory cloud comes and envelops the mountain. It's this Shekinah glory that we read about in the Old Testament, about um, how God envelops the Mount Sinai with His glory, of how He leads the Israelites through the desert uh, with the Exodus, with this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire. This is the glory that fills the tabernacle after it is established and dedicated. This is the cloud also that departs from Israel as Ezekiel sees in his prophecy. And out of this cloud, the voice of God speaks. God speaks and he says, You are my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. What greater confirmation of the deity of Christ can we have than the actual words from the Lord saying to Jesus, You are my son. Jesus is divine. He is the son of God. And in terms of his humanity, this is also a great comfort to Christ. When I was in high school, I played on the basketball team. And uh, whether we won or lost, whether we were at home or on the road, uh, my parents were my biggest fans. And it was a great joy for me to be able to walk out of the locker room after every game knowing that they would always be there. Whether I had scored 10 points, which uh, I think was my career high, um, or you know, whether I had done terribly, whether we had won or lost, they were always there. They were always there to support me, uh, to give me a hug, to give me a pat on the back, uh, to say good job. And for Jesus in his humanity, hearing the proud voice of his Father saying, You are my Son. It gives him great strength. It gives him encouragement. gives him the ability to soldier on. How important is it for us as fathers to encourage our kids I am not the perfect dad by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but there is something that I feel is so important for us as dads to communicate to our kids. To tell them often that we love them, that we are proud of them, not because of the things that they do, but simply because of who they are, that they're our kids. Our kids need to know that we love them when they have just done something so amazing that we are just blown away by it. Like, that is incredible. But they also need to hear how much we love them at 2 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon when nothing special has happened, but simply they need to know that we love them and that we are uh, an encouragement to them simply because they are our children. 
Jesus experiences this love of his Father in heaven, and he basks in that love. It is a beautiful thing. But why is it important that we know that Jesus was both human and divine? Uh, This is very key doctrine in Scripture. Because Jesus, without his divinity, would be exactly like you and me. And honestly, I don't want a Savior who is exactly like me. I need someone who is much greater than me. Because if Jesus did not have his divinity, he would suffer from the curse of original sin just like me. When he was faced with trials and temptations, he would fail just like you and just like me. He would not have been able to please God perfectly. But if he was simply divine and did not have his humanity, he could not have been a substitute for us, for our sin. If he was just divine, then he couldn't take our punishment because we as human beings sinned. Human beings are under the wrath of God. And so Christ became like us, taking our sin upon himself. And in Christ, humanity and divinity come together in this perfect union of this divine math that we can't fully understand of him being 100% God and 100% human. And in doing so, he's able to accomplish salvation by perfectly pleasing God in the perfect way that he lived his life. So Jesus is the Christ of God, as we looked at last week. He is the Son of God, the Father's chosen one, and he is the one who we need. So Jesus and the disciples, they have this amazing mountaintop, literally, experience, this transfiguration. And the next day, as they're coming down from this amazing experience, Jesus is encountered by this man who comes running up to him out of the crowd, and he starts yelling about his boy, his only son, who has this demon who is possessing him. And he immediately throws the other nine disciples under the bus. He says, I begged your disciples to drive this out, but they could not. And so how does Jesus respond? I find his response interesting, and it shows his humanity, because he's frustrated. He says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to be and to bear with you? Alright, parents. How often have you been there with your children? doesn't matter how old they are. (laughs) Maybe even as they get older, um, you would feel like you wouldn't be put in this position. But you say, how many times have I told you? This is what Jesus is experiencing here. He is experiencing this exasperation. He is frustrated. And honestly, frustration is a common human emotion. Uh, I felt it this past weekend, actually on Friday night, as we were driving back to our house. Uh, I had Elliot in the car with me, and we're about a mile away from home. Uh, I stop for someone who's about to turn left, and as I begin starting again, I hear that dreaded 
thump, 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 thump sound. So I pull to the side of the road, and sure enough, flat tire. It's like, how does this happen? Where, I, I didn't hit anything. I, I didn't see anything in the road. Uh, but sure enough, there's a significant rock. It must have been sharp that lodged itself between the treads. So uh, here I am having to change a tire on the side of the road, and I'm frustrated. Um, I, it seems like we've had to change more tires in the last two years uh, than I have in the rest of my life. Uh, but being frustrated isn't necessarily a sin. Jesus in his frustration does not sin. Let's be honest, being frustrated often leads to sin. Um, in our sinful nature, it, it does lead to that. But not in the case of Jesus. And what he does here is he heals the boy, he gives him back to his father, and everyone is simply amazed at the glory of God in what Christ has done. So why is Jesus frustrated here? Why does he say, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I going to bear with you? He's frustrated with the lack of faith of the disciples. Think of what he has just experienced. Being up here on top of the mountain, he has seen Moses and Elijah. His humanity has been uh, removed for a while. Uh, his glory has been, has been seen. He is enveloped in the cloud of the presence of his father who has just said, You are my son, my chosen one. Uh, listen to him. And as this is happening... His disciples are trying to drive out this demon, and they simply cannot. And so this is what he comes back down to. So what's going on here? What, what, are, what are the disciples doing wrong? What are they not getting? Uh, the other Gospels give us a little more information uh, as to what is happening here. In Mark 9, verses 28 and 29, uh, the disciples, after this episode, they later ask, why couldn't we drive it out? What was wrong? What weren't we doing right? And Jesus responds that this kind, this demon, can only come out with prayer. In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples that this requires faith, even as small as a mustard seed. So apparently what was happening is that these other nine disciples are not approaching this demon-possessed boy in the right way. They aren't approaching the situation from the point of faith and with prayer. So let's talk about prayer for a second. What happens when we pray? Well, when we pray, what we're doing is that we're opening ourselves up to the will of God. We're humbling ourselves before Him. We're declaring that God is the one who is mighty to save and that we are not able. What prayer does is that it reveals a dependence on God and not ourselves. Even Jesus in John chapter 11, as he was uh, approaching the tomb of Lazarus, he prayed. He prayed to his Father that they might believe that you sent me. He is pointing his attention to God the Father, that they might see his glory, not himself. This is what happens in prayer. Apparently, the disciples are not directing the attention to God at this point. The man came to them with his demon-possessed son, and they're trying to drive it out simply in their own strength. 
The father comes to Jesus and says, your disciples couldn't do it. They couldn't drive him out. And he's absolutely right. Because the disciples in and of themselves cannot do it. They don't have the power. We don't know for sure the heart of the disciples here. Uh, But Jesus was gone on the mountain, and here they are left to do the work on their own. There is a high potential that they are trying to do God's work in their own way rather than through the power of Christ. They weren't approaching the situation in faith. Faith in Jesus, that he is Christ, the Christ of God, which Peter had just declared only about a week prior. They weren't acting out of faith because if they were, they would have been confident in the power of Christ to heal and to drive out this demon. Instead, we see them trying to rely on their own power. What we see in this episode is the failure of the disciples to apply faith to their daily lives. Um, Over the past couple of weeks, I've been uh, listening to some lectures on the life, uh, the early life of Francis Schaeffer. So you may be hearing me mention him frequently um, because uh, I love uh, biographies, uh, especially of, of Christians. And uh, late in the 1940s and early 50s, Francis Schaeffer went through a crisis of faith because of what he was seeing not only in his own life, Uh, but also in the lives of Christians around him. He was part of a church movement that had separated themselves from the the liberal theology of the day, this uh, modern philosophy that was infiltrating the church, and they separated themselves from that. But what caused the crisis in Schaefer's faith, faith was in the midst of this great theology and defending the truths of Scripture that we uphold. He saw an arrogance, he saw a thirst for power, And he saw the gospel not having an effect on people's lives. Claiming the truths of the gospel, but not living it out. And he became disillusioned. So he spent several months going back to his agnosticism, which he was uh, involved in when he was young. uh, Where he was asking basic questions uh, of the truths of Christianity. And when he came out on the other side after several months, his faith in Christ was strengthened He had a renewed sense of the work of the Holy Spirit and the importance of prayer in the life of a Christian. And out of this is where the ministry of Labrie, uh, this Labrie Fellowship, uh, came to be realized. Because Labrie mostly is a place of prayer and of asking questions and of getting honest answers. Schaefer realized that we have a hard time applying the truth of the gospel to everyday life. And we see it here in the lives of the disciples. Now we understand that the gospel is the power for salvation. That when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit brings us to faith in the work of Christ on the cross. But what we often fail to grasp is that the power of the gospel does not end there. It is applied to our daily life as well. Now at this point in time, the, God, the, the disciples didn't, would not have understood the work, uh, the phrase, the finished work of Christ. Because the work wasn't finished yet. He hadn't died on the cross and he was not 
resurrected. They were still on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. But you can see what they were doing. They were initially trusting in Christ as he called them to be a disciple, but they weren't trusting in Christ in their daily lives. They are a reflection of how we often live our own lives without understanding the effect of the good news of the gospel of Jesus on every moment. And as we talked about last week, believing in the power of God leads us to denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following Him, and doing this leads to prayer. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, what is He doing? He is there to pray. Often in the book of Luke and in other Gospels, we see Jesus praying, of going before His Father in prayer. He is constantly surrendering Himself to His Father's will, which is why He is so often in prayer. But the disciples here are prayerless. First of all, Peter, James, and John are weary. They fall asleep on the mountain. Uh, The other disciples down below uh, are not uh, offering themselves to God in prayer to drive out this demon. So what about us? Let me ask the question. uh, How is your prayer life? It's a question that we as Christians ask a lot. How is our prayer life? Because Christians all over the world, we struggle with this act of prayer. We say that we need to get better. You know what? I really need to work on my prayer life. I really do. But the quality of our prayer life is just a symptom of something else. Our prayer life is actually a reflection of the faith that we have in Christ and our willingness to surrender to Him. So don't get caught up in simply treating the symptom, which is our prayer lives without dealing with the root cause, which is our faith in Christ, in the power of God in our daily lives. So as we conclude this morning, Jesus reminds His disciples of the Gospel. He reminds His disciples of the same words that He spoke last week, that Jesus didn't simply come to perform miracles, but He came to die. He says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He is about to suffer. He is about to die. But He also is about to be resurrected. Through His death and through His suffering, we will have life. So Jesus calls out His disciples here. He says, O faithless and twisted generation." How long am I to be with you and to bear with you? And we hear these words of Jesus, and we know full well that Jesus could have spoken them today to us. He could have said to us, you faithless and twisted generation. And we hang our heads because we associate so closely with the disciples that Jesus is talking about or talking to here. And we feel the twinge of shame. But on the flip side, These words also bring us hope, and they should fill us with joy. Jesus spoke these words near the end of his life, and then he went up into heaven. His physical presence wasn't with the disciples that much longer after these words. But what did Jesus say at the end? 
with the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 20. He says, And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. So how long is Jesus to be with us, to bear with us? The good news of the Gospel is that He is with us always. The good news is that He bears with us always because of what He has done for us. That those who have surrendered their lives to Christ in faith through the power of the Holy Spirit have the privilege of Christ being with us and bearing with us now and forevermore. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, I thank you that you have revealed to us through your word the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ, your Son. That we can have confidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we can be confident that He is our Lord and our Savior. I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, You would continue uh, to deepen our faith and trust in Him. Father, we know that often we can be described as a twisted and faithless generation. We confess to You that we, we consistently lack faith. And we don't surrender ourselves to you in prayer as often as we should. I pray that you would build faith in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. That we would fall more and more in love with your Son, Jesus Christ. That we would seek to know Him and to make Him known. Draw us to your Son through the beauty of your Gospel. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, Help us to live as becomes the followers of Christ, surrendering ourselves to you, taking up our cross, and following you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.